Folks, if you please grab a Bible there and open it. Genesis 11, page page 12, was it? Yeah. Page 12 there in the Bible, in the pews. This morning we're going to wrap up this series, which uh, has been running throughout most of the autumn, a series of studies in the book, or the early chapters of the book of Genesis, that we call the series In the Beginning. I hope it's been helpful for you to go back to uh, the very beginning of the Bible. I know in conversations I've had with a number of people over the last few months that some people have found this truly transformational. But going right back to the start of the story, having another look has helped us to see who God is, what this world is that he's created, who we are in new ways, and just gently shifting how we might live our lives. Folks, that's what God's word does. That's why we teach it. It changes our lives. It straightens us up. It aligns us with God's uh, view of the world. As I've engaged with these opening chapters of Genesis, um, particularly in these last weeks, I find myself coming back to some of life's big questions. So if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember we looked at this question, why am I here? Uh, And we thought about a couple of answers that come from the, the biblical text, these early chapters of Genesis. We're here to be with God and we're here to be like God. Uh, We saw that as we looked in a bit more detail at chapter 1, verse 27. This morning, as we wrap up our series, I'd like to suggest another of life's big questions. How am I going to live? I don't think you can read Genesis 1 to 11, uh, maybe particularly Genesis 11, without thinking about an answer to that question. We're going to spend most of our time this morning dealing with uh, Genesis 11, but actually, if you look at how we've split up Genesis, I've been given chapters 10 and 11 to cover this morning. So just the briefest look at chapter 10. If you have a quick look with me there, you'll see why I haven't chosen uh, to major on it. Somebody here might be able to preach a brilliant sermon on it. It's not me. A quick skim there shows us like a family tree of some of the the nations uh, a family tree of uh, some of the early descendants of of Noah and how they went on to become nations. It it seems to me that the the best uh, and most key point we can take out of this is that humanity is one under its creator. And it's a point worth taking seriously just for a moment because it seems to me that racism, the idea that one race is better than another or, or should uh, be content to exclude or disadvantage another. It seems that that view is, is alive and well in the UK these days. I'm sure it's at least one way of interpreting the Brexit vote to say that some people in our culture would gladly minimize our, um, our commitment and our responsibility to people from other nations when they fall in hard times. There are parts of the human family that we're not that interested in helping, where we don't see ourselves in kinship with that particular branch of the human family. Folks, whenever we fail to love 
any human being from any race, then we fail to love a brother and sister human being made in the image of God. Something I'm not used to here, let me just... (laughs) Thank you, Peter. Genesis 10, it's an important message. By the way, I can't remember if we shared this with you or not. I was told to share it with you, so a couple of months ago in Kirk Session, we had a chat about this kind of thing. We realized that we don't have all the answers to the asylum issues, you know, the, the, the... the movement of Syrian refugees, the the reality that some of those would come to be in Belfast. We did what we could in in that moment. We made a donation of £2,000 to the incidental fund of the International Meeting Point to make sure that maybe some individual uh, asylum seeker could be helped when they've fallen hard times. So through our church family, you have already uh, made a a small contribution uh, to the kind of thing that I have in mind here this morning. Okay, this question, how am I going to live? In light of the passage we read a couple of moments ago, in a sense I think this story is telling the same story that we've been looking at in recent weeks. Uh, It's a different cast of characters, different stage, but, but similar sort of themes. Whenever Adam and Eve disobeyed God, there was really only one sin at the heart of it, and as we said, it wasn't apple theft or fruit theft. They were choosing to live in God's world without God. It's, it's a choice to put God, the creator, out of the road and to put ourselves center stage. Adam and Eve choose to live without God. Uh, and you'll see Genesis 11, we're in similar territory again. I think you get it particularly when you, you drive by the building site and listen in on the conversation. Verse 4. The guys are talking about this building work they're doing. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Is that ringing any bells for anybody today? Can you think of a person who builds a tall tower, names it after himself, and talks a great deal about making himself and his tribe great? I think I know of at least one such person. The irony is he doesn't stand alone. Don't let's kid ourselves. The world's full of tower builders, and it seems it always was. There are at least three aspects to the, the sin of Babel. First of all, these folks are disobeying a a specific command that the Lord gave. Back in chapter 1, the Lord said, when he created human beings, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Move out through the earth. That command was given to Abraham, but it was repeated in the text we looked at last week in the Noah story in chapter 9. So these tower builders say, no, we know that we're supposed to move out and fill the earth, but we're not going to. We want to stay here. They're acting in direct disobedience to God's will. That first disobedience might be a little bit hard to understand. I'm not going to take too much time on it. 
But the arrogance and rebellion at the heart of their, uh, their sin, of their human actions, soon become clear. They say that they want a tower that reaches to the heavens. The idea here, I think, is that there's a gap between ourselves and God or the gods, and we're going to cross the gap. We're going to make ourselves into gods. For me, this has a massively contemporary ring to it. It all, it all sounds like the, the times in which I've grown up. As a, as a younger kid, and funny, we watched Apollo 13 with our kids last weekend. The space race used to be one of the places where human beings talked about pushing back frontiers. We're going to, you know, conquer the, the entire known and currently unknown universe. We're going to be as the gods. You see it also in the, if that's the macro version, the micro version is when you, you hear uh, the chat about uh, genetic engineering. Uh, we're going to become the masters and arbiters of life. We're going to create life in the forms that, that we want it to be. This, this spirit of reaching to the heavens, the spirit of being like the gods, very contemporary. And the final strand of the rebellions, this clear desire for independence from God, the purpose of the whole scheme is what? Billy's already helped us to see it. It's to make a name for themselves. This isn't happening for God's glory. This isn't people asking themselves, why did God create me? Why did he put me here? No, this is, this is for themselves, to make a name for themselves. So Adam and Eve before them, and now on a greater stage, the peoples of Babel choose to live without God. We're asking this question this morning, how am I going to live? And I think Babel, this building site of Babel, throws up one answer to that question, one approach. And that is that we make a name for ourselves. We live without God. Well, we're not Babel, you're saying. We're, we're not that kind of people. We're people who gather in Kirkpatrick Memorial. We gather here to hear about following Jesus. We have nothing to think about in a story like this. This is for, for other people. Not for us. Not so sure about that. I wonder if there isn't a whole lot more Babel in this room and in our hearts than, than we would want to admit. For, for the younger guys in the congregation, let me ask you, what's your greatest ambition? as you look to the life that lies ahead of you? What kind of a life are you hoping for? If, if you're not quite sure how to, how to answer that yet, um, maybe here's a good way of putting it. Where do you go in your head when you daydream? Do you dream of winning X Factor? We must do, like we sit and watch the thing. We must, there must be some part of us that wants to, to be the guy or the girl on the stage getting the applause, winning the contest? Do I want to play rugby for Ireland? Want to get a clean sweep in our, of A-stars a in our A-levels? Does your mood depend on how many people have liked 
your last post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever? If you're saying yes to any of those things or kinds of things, maybe you're trying to make a name for yourself. I've been speaking with the younger guys for a moment. What about the, the rest of us, those of us with jobs? I think Babel gives us something to think about too. You see, Genesis 11 is all about work. These guys are showing up on the building site to do their work. And the conversation, verse 4, we've already paid some attention to that, but it's a conversation about their work, and particularly it's about their motivation. Why am I going to do the work that I'm doing it? Why I'm doing it? What is it they say? We want to build the tallest tower in the world. We want to be the greatest. We want to be the best. We want to make a name for ourselves. We're working for ourselves. Any of those dynamics at place in your motivation for your work? Then the spirit of Babel might just be alive and well in you. Let's come back to the story. We've spent a few moments uh, reflecting on this uh, story so far in Genesis 11. And without realizing it, maybe we're sliding back into the cycle that I pointed out a few weeks ago in, in Genesis, and it's recurred the last few weeks. Do you remember I said that in these stories there's a cycle of sin, judgment, and grace? At the end of the Noah story, the sin was obvious, the judgment's obvious, but in chapter 9, we see God's grace. It's wonderful how he reestablishes and recommissions human life on the earth. But now these tower builders, we're starting a new cycle, aren't we? The sin. How does God respond? Well, he responds in the way that he always responds with judgment. And if you look, verse 6. If as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they'll not understand each other. Although this is another serious rebellion, God keeps his promise. I'm not going to wipe the earth out as I did in the days of Noah. There's no complete destruction of human life. The judgment here is Simple but effective. This massive project of self-promotion, it relies on them all being able to work together. So God undermines that. Notice that in verse 1. that They'd been sharing a similar language and God, his punishment, he confuses their language. And as a result, they, they end up being scattered over the earth. The mind boggles trying to work out what actually happened there. Not too sure. But tell me this. Do you see how the judgment of Babel is still um, still present in our workplaces? If my main motivation in my workplace is me, me getting recognition for my work, me getting the promotion, me getting the pay rise, if that's how I go into the office or into my workplace each day, then you're not my colleague. We're competitors. 
We might not articulate it, but in here, I'm not for you. I'm gently and subtly against you. We're not speaking the same language anymore. We're not working together anymore. When the spirit of Babel is in our hearts, we we don't do good work. Folks, the, the truth is that this moment of Babel in Genesis 11, it's not really a standalone event. It's the recognition of, of a movement right throughout human history. This is a way of living without God, and its effects have been with us always. Babel, if you follow it in, in the biblical narrative, ends up as Babylon. You maybe know about Babylon. Babylon's Israel's great enemy. The place where God's people are eventually sent into exile as a punishment by God. But Babel's continues to be used long after the, the strength of the Babylonian Empire. It's used as a kind of a, a code word for any society that's deeply anti-God. The world that's intent on making a name for itself. Babel. It's alive and well today. As we finish reading this story of of human sin and God's judgment on it, uh, you might have noticed that there's one thing missing. I promised you a cycle. Sin, judgment, grace. (laughs) There's no grace. Where's the good news in this story? Here in Genesis 11, it looks like the last word is a word of judgment. What's going on? Has God had enough? Is he like me? Where I can tolerate being run over two or three times, but eventually I rise up and I come back. Has he had enough? The reason why Genesis 11 ends the way it does with with God's judgment and then just a family tree just moves on from the story is because it's not really the end of the story. It's only the end of the beginning. This is the the end of a part of the Bible. Something significant and new is going to happen. At the end of chapter 11, we're left craving God's grace, hoping that God hasn't given up on human beings. And then chapter 12 a new chapter begins. It tells the story of a man. He does nothing to promote himself. He does nothing to make a name for himself. All God does is he chooses him. And he says to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great, name, a great nation and I will bless you. What does he say? I will make your name great. I'll give you a blessing. Abraham doesn't make a name for himself. God gives him a name. Folks, we'll have to wait till someday when we look at that chunk of the Bible, look at the story of Abraham before we get to, to look at that in a bit more depth. But, but what, what's set in motion in Genesis 12 is really just the, the, the long and glorious story of God's grace. 
the lengths that God goes to to turn the spirit of Babel on its head. We're going to have to wait actually a couple of millennia before a man shows up who finally and fully allows God to give him his name. I was laughing when Billy started the service. You'd almost think that the Holy Spirit's at work sometimes. Almost. Um, sorry, that was a joke at, at Presbyterians uh, like, like myself. Billy chose, although he and I hadn't talked about it, to talk about Philippians chapter 2. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 about a man who allows God to give him his name. In contrast to the Babel builders who are trying to reach up and up and up to the heavens, he has it all. He has the status of heaven and he drops down to be with us. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. In contrast to the Babel builders who are trying to make themselves great, we're the big news around here, we're the guys, he makes himself nothing, humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because he lived this kind of a life where he's not trying to make a name for himself, what does God do? He exalts him. And he says, here, give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus has the great name. He gives it all away and God gives him the greatest name of all. Folks, how are we going to live? We've seen this morning that there really only are two ways to live. We can live at Babel, like the rest of the world, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to stay on the throne, trying to make it all about us. Or we can live in Christ, the one who turned Babel on its head, and allow him to give us a name. What's it like to live in Christ? Well, he gives us our identity. Not our exam results. Or our pay scale. Or a postcode. Whenever we live in Christ, we stop trying to do it on our own. Pitting ourselves against our creator. Pitting ourselves against each other. Instead, we put all our weight on what God's already done for us. It's only in Christ that we regain everything that Adam and Eve lost. It's only in Christ that we find a true alternative to Babel living. I was reading a, a book by a professor of mine, uh, Dr. Houston, In Search of Happiness. It's a book about how to be happy. As he talks about this shift from Babel to Christ, he says, our search for happiness comes to an end. Our new life of receiving from God who wants to give us all things begins. 
How are we going to live? Going to do the Babel thing? Knock our heads in to make a name for ourselves? Or are we going to be in Christ? Allow him to give us all things. Let's pray. Father God, we've been reminded today in your word that you've put a person on the center of the on the throne at the center of the universe, and it's not me. It's not any of us. It's Jesus Christ. Help us to stop trying to build up things and ourselves to knock Jesus off his throne. Help us instead to get in step with the way life really is. That there's somebody at the heart of all things who loves us so much that he died for us and who wants to give us everything. Lord, help us to bow before Jesus and find the fullness of life in him. Amen. Let's keep our seats as we sing together and we'll, the stewards will lift the offering during this song as well. Um, it's a song that allows us to recognize that Jesus' name, not, not my name or, or yours, is at the heart of all things. Your, your name. Uh, we'll keep our seats and the stewards will lift the offering. <laughs>